Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm doing okay.、Um, I'm enjoying the end of summer. You have a good breakfast? My usual smoothie,、uh, including a banana, some unsweetened almond milk, some maca powder, some hemp protein powder, some omega oils. Wow. And、uh, that was my breakfast. I just finished it before we started recording, actually. How's your brain feeling?、Um, a little bit foggy because it's really early. What's、uh, maca? Maca is like a Peruvian,、uh, well, it's the root that is ground up. Anyway, we totally should not be talking about this today. We have more important things to attend to. Such as? Today on the show, we're airing our second of an ongoing series, which is the From the Archives series of the Trave podcast. And this is an interview that Leslie Lutsky did with one Ella Shohat. Yeah, I mean, we, if, if you haven't heard any of our previous From the Archives episodes, Leslie Lutsky was the host of、uh, Jewish Digest, which was a regular Jewish radio show in Montreal for years and stopped broadcasting、uh, just this past year. Yeah, and we've been lucky enough to get access to some of those archives, and we're playing the shows that we feel should be re aired. And one of those, like I just mentioned, is an interview that was done with Ella Shohat, who is a professor at NYU. She's written a handful of books and articles Taboo Memories, Diasporic Voices, Israeli Cinema, East West, and the Politics of Representation, and is one of the founders of Mizrahi Studies in Israeli Academia. Yeah, I mean, when we started the Trafe podcast, one of the people that we wanted to interview more than anybody else was Ella Shoah. And we tried. <laughs> Sam, I know many times in the past, has actually gone to her office <laughs> where she was not there. And we have been unable to contact her by phone or by email. So we finally admitted to ourselves that we're never going to get this interview. And so we decided、uh, we were looking through Leslie Lutsky's archives, and he had this interview with Ella Shoah from 2004. Uh, it's a pretty wide ranging interview, different from most of the archives that we're planning on airing, which are a little more focused. But we thought, short of interviewing her ourselves, this would be the next best thing. Now, this interview is from 2004, so obviously some of the references are dated.、Uh, before listening to the episode, if you really want to do your homework, Google Ella Shohat and read everything you can find on the internet. <laughs> Couldn't agree more.、Um, without further ado, here is the interview with Ella Shohat. Dr. Shohat, towards the end of the 1940s, early 1950s, about 100,000 Iraqi Jews left Iraq for Israel. Why did they leave? What was the situation that they left so many at one short period? Yeah.、Uh, the Iraqi Jews, like a lot of Arab Jews, did not necessarily intend to leave. I mean, they lived for thousands of years in the region, even if for religious reasons,、uh, Eretz Israel or Palestine was a holy place. They traveled to that place. They did not need a state of Israel to travel to that place. It was not an inaccessible space. But with the fall of the Ottoman Empire, with the arrival of French and British colonialism in the region, the map of the region has changed so drastically, not only in terms of actually drawing lines in the sand, but also in terms of the political、uh, map. That had tremendous impact on Jews. 
precisely because it was the first time in their history that they had to choose between Arabness and Jewishness. And since they were Arabized for millennia, it was never an issue whether you're an Arab or a Jew. I mean, your religion was Jewish or your religious background was Jewish, but your Arabness was part of your cultural, your daily life activities, not unlike the Christian Arabs or the Muslim Arabs. And distinctions were made according to the religious communities, as well as ethnic communities and, and regions. So it was not a matter of national identity. With the introduction of Zionism to the region, with the introduction of nationalism, very rigid definitions of identity came to dominate the region to the point that it was no longer possible to be simply an Arab Jew, to be of religious background, Jewish, and have Arab culture. Furthermore, the partition of Palestine and the fact that Palestinians were dispossessed, becoming refugees in the Arab world, the fact that Arab governments and certain Arab parties like the Istiklal Party in Iraq were putting out uh, anti-Jewish propaganda that, on the one hand, you can say it was legitimate insofar as it was directed against the Israeli dispossession of Palestinians. But the problem was that they never made a serious distinction in their discourse about Jew versus Zionist, although sometimes they would make symbolic gestures about it, the fact is that in demonstration they would shout uh, anti-Jewish uh, slogans, which uh, had tremendous shocking impact on the community. Uh, furthermore, there are discriminatory policies. It is as though Arab Jews had to pay the price of the dispossession of Palestinians, even though they themselves were not the people to dispossess Palestinians. And that even includes Palestinian Jews in Palestine. Some of them actually were part of the Palestinian community and Congress, actually, that was against Zionism. This is in the 20s, actually. There were Christian Palestinians, Jewish Palestinians, and Muslim Palestinians. So it's an interesting moment where uh, those tensions were not necessarily clearly Arab versus Jew. We tend to think, you know, when you read newspaper, you think it was some kind of a long history of millennia, you know. This is a very recent thing. Um, the Jewish community in Iraq had been a very, very old ancient community, and they had fared reasonably well there, in many cases very well. What was it that came upon the powers that be at that time to decide to you know, have all of these people leave the country, so to speak? Um, they, because of this impact of the slogans, the propaganda, the campaign against Jews, but apart from it, there was a Zionist underground that was active there, although it was a minority and connected actually to the government of Israel. And there was uh, the government of Israel at the time in 48, uh, 49, 50, desperately needed Jews for demographic reasons, uh, because this whole question of minority versus majority, who owns that space, who owned that land, was a crucial issue. They also needed people in terms of labor, in terms of uh, military. So all of those reasons meant that the Israeli government desperately needed more Jews, especially if we have to remember that after World War II, 
most of the Holocaust survivors, most of the Jews, some were brought to Israel, but the majority ended up going to the Americas, Australia, South Africa, Western Europe. So Israel actually desperately needed those Jews, and in fact Ben-Gurion said that the Jews for whom we prepared and established this state, unfortunately, are not here, and we have now to bring the Jews we don't really want. What did the Israeli government do to make sure that the Jews would come over? There are many accounts about that. The government at the time in Iraq was led by Nouri al-Said, who was a prime minister who was closely connected with the British, and with pressures from Britain through the Israeli government, he agreed to, for the Jews to leave that country because up to that point they could not leave to Israel. But ironically enough, most Jews did not do so. And in fact, the community at the time, we're talking from 48 to 50, continued to build schools, which showed an actual uh, disinterest in that move, despite the fact that they were anxious. It's not so simple for people who lived there for millennia to simply go and move. We did not suffer a Holocaust, and that's something we have to remember. There were not Zionists or anti-Zionists, the majority, with the exception of the small Zionist uh, youth or the anti-Zionist communists. The majority were not interested. And also, there is an argument that what actually led to the move, because in Haolamazeh in the 70s, they published that actually the Mossad, with the Zionist underground, put... Uh, bombs in the Jewish synagogue of Mas'ud Hashem and that created major panic. They speak about the carrot and stick approach. Since the carrot, giving up the citizenship, did not work out, this kind of activities resulted in people being so panicked that they registered to leave, and then, you know, once one member of the family moves, then the rest moves as well. There's this popular image that the people who came from the Sephardic countries in the 1940s, 1950s, were considered refugees, where many of them consider themselves immigrants rather than refugees. What is your take on that? I think it's uh, very complicated. I think, unlike the Palestinian, where we can clearly speak about it as a matter of refugees, people who did not want to move out, did not live and had to flee. In the case of Arab Jews, uh, I have argued that the question of agency is very complicated because, of course, on the one hand, you have religious link to Palestine, but that doesn't mean that you want to be part of a Jewish state. The fact is that those Jews did not really want to move out. So therefore, the term aliyah, which uh, literally means ascendancy in Hebrew, spiritual as well as economic, was the opposite. I often claim it is yerida, which is descending. It was going down economically. It was going down mentally, emotionally. Uh, uh, in every possible way, it was a traumatic shock for Arab Jews because Zionists also lured them, not just by planting bombs, but by also promising this idea of the promised land. What they, what they did was to graft messianic religious discourse onto a very nationalist, secular project, which confused a lot of people. And one of the things, and since I know it from my family, from my research, is the shock took place 
because they had kind of fantasies. And many of the Zionist activists played on those fantasies of the land of milk and honey and the promised land. So once they arrived, and they arrived to horrible conditions, not simply because they were only in tents and slept on rocks with snakes, but also because of the humiliation that they experienced. Ben-Gurion called the human dust. So they were immediately sprayed with DDT. There is the story that is still up to now a scandalous story. People are still fighting the story of the kidnapping of Yemeni and other Sephardic children uh, from the late 40s up to the mid-60s, where children were taken, babies were taken from their mothers. The mothers usually were told that the babies died. No death certificate was issued. There was no burial place. But later on, it was revealed that the babies were given for adoption, and it wasn't for private money, because everyone was a government worker. It was done by social worker, nurses, doctors. Everything was under the regulation, under a very centralized government, because they really believed that we're so inferior that those children are better off with Ashkenazi parents who do not have children or want more children, or some were sold to families in the U.S., how did it affect your own family who did arrive in Israel, I believe, the early 1950s? What were their living conditions like, and what did they have to deal with? Yeah, I mean, the kind of issues I was just describing certainly impacted my family. They were extremely shocked when they arrived. They were put in a tent where my mother up to now suffered from terrible arthritis because the weather conditions were so horrible she was so shocked that my father said that for a year she she was crying nonstop, saying that she wants to go back. And in fact, she ironically was, was among the minority who were Zionists. She believed in that project of going, moving to Israel, and, and she was completely shocked. What about yourself? How did it affect you, being from an Iraqi Jewish background, living in Israel, which was very... Ashkenazi, right? Yeah, I think for all of us, uh, uh, children who spoke Arabic at home, my parents never spoke a word of Hebrew. Uh, I'm sorry, my grandparents did not speak a word of Hebrew. My parents were bilingual, but spoke Hebrew with a heavy Iraqi accent. We, one might say that it's a typical immigrant story, being ashamed of your culture, wanting to assimilate, um, hating your family, having anxiety about Arabic, but I would say that it's worse than that. And the reason why it's worse than that is because Israel was in a situation of war with the Arab world, and we came from the Arab world, and Israel viewed Arab culture and Arab people as inferior, and we were those Arab people. Educated people like my father, who was an accountant in Iraq, suddenly became overnight construction workers. They were not used to physical labor, uh, they were looked down upon. Less educated Ashkenazis were their bosses, and there was no way that my father could ever surpass, despite the fact that he was professionally better. So that level of everyday racism combined with this centralized domination of every aspect of our lives, whether you receive health care, job, and your education, unlike Canada and the U.S., where Immigrants can establish their own community spaces. Even if they suffer racism and discrimination, they still have 
the autonomy to establish their own communal spaces, whether through school, radio station, newspaper. That was not the case in Israel. The public schooling was completely dominated by the government, radio station, newspaper. So we did not have our outlets. So when you were going to school, were you part of a minority or were you of school with many, many Sephardic people? And were you treated differently or made to feel inferior in some way? We're absolutely meant to feel inferior. Now, it depends wh- where you live. If your neighborhood was completely Sephardic, the teachers at the time and the administration of school was completely Ashkenazic, not to mention the curricula. So that created tons of tension because at school you would be taught not simply Western education, you would be also taught Eastern European Jewish history. You would never learn anything. Up to now, in history textbook in Israel, Jewish history textbook would have nine pages out of 400 pages. Literally, a friend of mine, Mayor Gall, did an artwork about it where he holds the history textbook. Nine pages out of 400 of a Jewish history textbook are dedicated. This is very typical. So we've been raised in a situation where we were product to be ignorant and and not to know anything about our own history. So coming home, there was incredible cultural tension. All of us were ashamed of our parents and their Arabness and their Arabic culture. And that was kind of a psychic violence that a lot of us have endured. I think the government was consciously trying to assimilate the Jewish people from the Arab countries into a more European culture. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think the whole project of Zionism, and I've written about it, starts actually with a self-rejection, where Zionists actually incorporated the anti-Semite discourse about Jews, uh, because they looked at the shtetl Jew, the diaspora Jew, as something inferior. So in a sense, the idea of Zionism, if you look at Herzl's text, he really, as a Jew from Vienna, who was assimilated himself and who discovered this idea of establishing the state of the Jews, as he called it, after the Dreyfus case, it was really about a home for rejected shtetl Jews, but he really looks down at them. They're the Eastern, they're the Ostjuden. He really believes in that. And the whole project of Zionism of transplanting Jews from Europe to Palestine was about also transforming them into westernized people. And ironically, it is as though the old student could only become westernized in the East. With regards to the real old student, (laughs) the Eastern Jews uh, coming from Arab countries, the project, of course, they talked about it directly in their statement in the government educational system, which largely actually directed by German Jews, then by also Polish and Russian Jews, The idea of westernization up to now is a major obsession because Eastern Arab culture have nothing to contribute. So this is not something that they just happen to have prejudices. I mean, if you happen to have just personal prejudices, you know, many people of many communities have prejudices. You'll find prejudices in the Arab world. you find prejudices everywhere. But translating those prejudices into an apparatus of power where you actually program this type of discrimination and 
transformation of people from one culture to another is a whole other thing. You know, they would run after Yemeni kids with pelf and cut their pelf. This is something that is quite shocking, whatever you might think of religiosity. Um, but this act of cutting their pelf was something very traumatic for a lot of people because it's the kind of westernization was done in a very violent way or in other ways when it was done presumably nicely it was done in patronizing fashion with completely disrespect to what we brought and what we had to contribute. Many of the Zionist leaders have spoken about marriages between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews as making a new people who will be sabers or even the army also contributing to that effect. Look, I mean, of course, living together, mixed marriages, and especially going to the army together, creates a new culture, creates a new space, creates new identities. However, that does not mean that racism and discrimination stops. Mixed marriages is really still, among Sephardim and Ashkenazim, is still a small percent of the, the relationship. Mixed marriages takes place more among Ashkenazics of diverse origins and Sephardics of diverse origins. But even in the situation of mixed marriages, which is 20%, what happens is that um, often it is the Sephardic who ends up assimilating and their children become more of Ashkenazis. But you know, it's very interesting what has happened recently. There have been a kind of a renaissance of discourses about Mizrahi identity and people assuming that their Mizrahiness. Even children now, some, of mixed marriages are now becoming more activist on Mizrahi issues, which is a fascinating process. This is part of a very new renaissance uh, where people now begin to claim, this is third generation, people begin to claim their identity. I want to ask about definitions. What does it mean to be Mizrahi? Is it the same thing as being Sephardic? Uh, well, the terminology is, can be very confusing because Sephardi literally means someone from Spain and it refers to the Jews of Spain, but it was also used largely to refer to Jews of Muslim and Arab countries because, as you know, the Jews of Spain not only spoke Spanish, but they also, most of the liturgy, the literature written by Jews in Spain for centuries was in Arabic because Jews arrived to Spain and Iberia with the Arab-Muslim conquest. So they were also part of an Arabic civilization, not simply Spanish civilization. Uh, so the term itself is a bit confusing, and you have different terminology used over ages, you know. There isn't one term. You can say Iraqi Jews, but that defined particular region. You can say Baghdadi Jews, that's according to urban spaces. But in Israel... The term Mizrahi comes to occupy a particular meaning. Literally, it means Oriental. And it refers to different Jews, not only Arab Jews, Jews from Turkey, Iran, India, so-called the East, who not only have some certain cultural practices in common, but also have a particular experience in common, which is the experience of discrimination in Israel. So we, and I was part of that movement that shifted actually the terminology into Mizrahim in the 80s with the idea that Sephardim still tended to be an older term and we wanted something that reflects our new generation. Another term, you identify yourself as an Arab Jew or Jewish Arab. 
what does that actually mean, and how do people take to hearing the expression Jewish-Arab in Israel? Um, I remember in the late 80s, I was interviewed, and I said I was an Arab Jew in Israel, and I was attacked very viciously for that. Um, the reason why I used the term was was not just a, as a description. Obviously, you have to acknowledge, just as you say American Jew, you say European Jew, there shouldn't be any problem with saying an Arab Jew. First of all, it is a description of people whose religious background is Jewish, but their culture and history is also Arab. But it's also a political term in the sense that it refuses to erase the hyphen between the Arab and the Jew. Only recently, this identities, Arab versus Jews, have been constructed as oppositional identities only very recently. It, it forces us to think differently about history, that this is not inevitable process. So the term Arab Jew contains both a critique, but also a hope, a kind of a utopia. I'd like to know if the Israeli government or powers that be have acknowledged some of the ways they've treated the Sephardic community in the past years. Hardly. What you would get at best, for years we would be laughed at, we wouldn't even have a hearing in the media, we could have 10,000 people demonstrating about the kidnapped Yemeni children situation in the 80s, but you wouldn't even have report about it, it would be suppressed in all media reports. This is not just government, I'm talking really, I will be more blunt than that. People of the Israeli Ashkenazi left have had hard time for years in the Peace Now movement, for example, had hard time acknowledging their own implication in that kind of racist practices and owning up to that history. So what you have is, well, at best, they would say, well, there were some mistakes made. And yet what you see that now, what is being now done with the Ethiopians you see that it's not simply mistakes that are repeated. It is part of programmatic attempt of a class system and of a very racialist, I wouldn't necessarily even say racist, but racialist attitude that does view non-European Jews as inferior. So there isn't really an admission. There is some mistakes were done or this is not intentional. I'll tell you more than that. Post-Zionist historian Tom Segev who wrote his book, 1949, The First Israelis, which is based on revealing archival uh, state uh, documents about the expulsion of Palestinians and also about discriminatory policies against uh, Jews who just came from Arab countries. For example, giving best farmland to Ashkenazic Jews while giving the barren land to Sephardic Jews. Hundreds of hundreds of incidents where in government meetings, they would speak about it. But so we interviewed him once, this is in 84, and we said, this is amazing. We're completely exhilarated that there is a book, because uh, we used to say it was intentional, but here are the proofs. And he denied that it was intentional. This was quite amazing to us, how you as a historian revealing those documents where it's actually written black and white, that let's give, well, anyway, the uh, Moroccan Jews are used to horrible standard living, so let's first take out the Marlboro, the Polish Jews, who are really not used to those kind of conditions. Excuse me, 
What do you know about Moroccan Jews? Those statements are in his book, and yet there is this kind of dissonance between what is written and what is collected by this historian and what is willing to say about intentional policies. He is protecting the status quo, it sounds like. Well, in some ways, or I, I, I sometimes I don't know that it's really done. Sometimes it's not necessarily ill will. Sometimes I really believe that there is some kind of a dissonance, almost unconscious self-defensiveness that does not allow some of this uh, leftists to admit to their own responsibility. And I mean, sometimes I wonder about this kind of, you know, always wanting to maintain your upper hand, your moral upper hand, like you've never done anything wrong which I think is a problem also with regards to the question of Palestine, that there is no basic, I mean, apart from the question of land and pragmatic solution, there is a major issue of admitting to something very basic that was wrong. I want to jump topic a little bit. What were the Bereka films, and what message were they telling the Israeli people? The Bereka's films, which is the term come from the uh, break, which is a Sephardic pastry, were uh, largely about ethnic tensions between, they were usually comedies, sometimes melodramas, like Salah Shabbat, is about ethnic tensions between Sephardic and Ashkenazic, but they had a nationalistic ideology, I would say, in the sense that they actually undermined the Sephardic anger and criticism by saying, well, yes, there are some uh, tensions between us, but it's really not serious because we're all, after all, Jews. And then most of those films uh, actually ended up with mixed marriages. And by having this idea of mixed marriages, we really celebrated the Jewish nation, which can be fine. In, uh, I'm not against mixed marriages. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this kind of representation, apart from the fact that it's wasn't the norm, necessarily, was very problematic because it really suppressed our criticism, our anger. It always was almost a way of delegitimizing our anger. How are the Sephardim doing today, the year 2004, in Israel? Has their status been elevated or upgraded? Any? Um, you know, on one level you can say that after 67, in some ways, the situation of Sephardim a little bit improved at the expense of the Palestinians. There began to be some more Sephardic construction managers. Um, so on one level, the situation somewhat improved, but on another level, since also the, the standard of living of upper-middle-class Ashkenazis also rose, so we're told that it's worse by uh, Adva Center and Hila. Uh, which is an uh, educational organization in Israel, which actually said that proportionally it got worse. And in fact, the gap, for example, the educational gap in our parent generation, that is the immigrants of the 50s, if you compare a Holocaust survivor or Ashkenazis who came to Israel in the 40s, 50s, compared to Moroccan or Israelis, the educational gap was actually not that big, but right now it is huge which suggests that actually contrary to the dominant idea that Israel was a good place for us, that educated us, in fact, it is the opposite. It's true also of Palestinians. Most Palestinians outside of Israel have higher 
educational achievement than Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. In fact, there is a Nahon report about the educational system. It says that at the top it's Ashkenazis, those who are reach the higher level of education. Second, it is the Christian Palestinians. Third, it is Muslim Palestinians. Fourth, it is Mizrahim. And fifth, it is the Druze. And this is really fascinating. And in fact, Shlomo Swirsky, a sociologist, actually called it the three tracks of education. There is one for Ashkenazim, one for Mizrahim, and one for Palestinians. There's this image that during the 1960s, 70s, the Israeli prisons, most of the prisoners were Moroccan or Sephardic Jews due to the kind of conditions you've been talking about. Absolutely. This is really still true. Our major representation is in prison because of poverty, as in many other places. This is not unusual. Very often you hear, you know, the idea that being Israel, the free country for the Jewish people, you know, they have their own land, their own country, but yet, listening to you, it sounds like this certainly wouldn't apply to the Mizrahi Jews. Yeah, I, you know, in some ways I wonder even if it applies for Ashkenazi. I'll, I'll go more than that. I think on one level it allowed a lot of Ashkenazim to propel them to upward mobility. You know, if you think of a lot of poor Ashkenazis coming to Israel and then becoming the upper middle class. And if you are from English-speaking country today, and Ashkenazi who come from the U.S., Canada, or Britain, they'll certainly belong, even immediately be embraced by the upper class. So American Jews or Canadian Jews who go there feel extremely welcome. They can immediately be part of the upper class. Um, it's a very different story for us, and that's why this notion of Freedom for the Jews become, in class terms and in race terms, very painful. But then, probably the least safe place for Jews today is is Israel. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but this is really, it raises a lot of questions. I mean, for me, you know. I'd like to ask one more question. In Israel today on the radio, we hear a lot of Sephardic Hebrew music, there's a lot of Sephardic food in Israel Mm -hmm. now, definitely the Mm -hmm. Sephardic influence, but does any of this translate into power for the Sephardic community within their own culture and way of doing things? Things have changed over the past 10 years in the sense, I mean, the, the major shift started with 77 with Likud coming to power. The Likud was very smart in especially begging in manipulating, in a sense, this resentment against labor's years and years of racism and sort of giving the feeling. The Mosafaridic admits that the Likud importance was not in actually giving actual change as more as a kind of emotional recognition and incorporation into this idea of the Jewish nation and then also incorporating more Sephardic into the army. Up to that point, most uh, deserters, most people who did not go to the army were working class Sephardim, but that changed after Likud came to power. And that gave a certain push to the point that in the 90s, Sephardim, especially since 95, began more vocally to speak about their identity, about their culture, and that's what I'm saying. There is now a renaissance, and people are claiming it. There is much more representation on television, on the media. So this is not as horrible as it used to be in many ways. Things did change. However, 
at the same time, as I said, the question of educational outlets, the, the question of crime, the question of uh, violence, all of those issues still continue, and the bitterness, you know, there is a lot of tokenism. So you would have a Sephardi representative, or you would have, but still people feel very tokenized that there isn't a true democracy in terms of self-representation. And also, to be represented, especially in the government or in the Knesset, you cannot really have a leftist Mizrahi stance. You, you, you won't be part of the government. Dr. Sohat, I've run out of time, but thank you very, very much. Thank you. So that was Leslie Lutsky interviewing Ella Shoet. As usual, if you have access to any audio archives from leftist Jewish media, interviews with people doing political work, um, figures from Jewish leftist history, please get in touch. We'd love to air these things on the show. You can send us an email at trafepodcast at gmail.com. Trafe Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganegahaga territory. Thanks to Claire Hertig, to C. Lavery, to Kira Page, to Cadence O'Neill, to Ariana Katz, the Trafe staff rabbi, and to Sax Syndrome and So Called for the music you heard in the episode. More episodes soon. Get out of the